I'm Eric Sorensen, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. There are nine new faces sitting around the Prime Minister's cabinet table after last week's swearing-in ceremony. But Justin Trudeau also made sure to keep some of his closest advisors in key roles. Among them, Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. So what are the marching orders for this new cabinet? Joining us now is Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. Sir, uh, we've had an election. The Canadians gave you back what you already had. But you've made some very big changes in cabinet. New faces, new roles. Um, the aim must be with that big change to do something better. What's, what, what are you going to do better? What can you do better? Well, I, I think, Eric, governments can always look at ways to do better. Uh, we do that in our own lives. Businesses do that all the time. So we're always thinking of ways that we can better serve Canadians and that we can uh, move forward quickly on the big issues that matter to people. So, uh, for example, obviously the fight against climate change, global collaboration, working with international partners was a huge issue in the election. That obviously is a big focus of our government's work. Finishing the fight against COVID in my conversations uh, with the prime minister and in my role as the intergovernmental affairs minister, we still have to work with provinces and territories to get the fight against COVID behind us. And then obviously to focus on the elements of the economy that will need, uh, will need attention, will need work coming out of the pandemic. So those continue to be huge focuses uh, of our government's work. And you saw an enthusiastic group of ministers last week ready to start work right away. Let me ask you about a couple of specific uh, cabinet ministers. Anita Anand in uh, defense, can she do what hasn't been done till now, what the prime minister himself called was a crisis of the culture in the military? Do you have some high hopes that she can get something done that just you really have been spinning your wheels on till now? Uh, I do. I think she's a, an outstanding uh, uh, minister. She is also an outstanding jurist. She was a University of Toronto law professor uh, with specific experience in governance issues. Uh, so I think that background will be very important in moving very quickly uh, with the military justice system, with uh, former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour, who is currently undertaking some uh, work in terms of what are the appropriate systems. We certainly share the frustration, Eric, of Canadians when we've when we've seen uh, recent recent stories come to light. We've said from the beginning that uh, people who serve in Canada's armed forces, and certainly as we approach Remembrance Day, uh, it's it's even more important to recommit to ensuring that the people who serve Canada in this extraordinary way have a safe and respectful workplace that survivors are heard and are valued uh, by the senior officials in the military. I have every confidence that Madame Anand will be a very, very effective uh, and very swift uh, advocate in terms of putting into place the necessary changes. You've had five foreign affairs ministers in six years. Uh, there really hasn't been an established presence or leadership from the top in that department. Do you, do you think that Minister Jolie can help do that? Because she's not at the G20 this weekend. And it seems to many like it is just a figurehead position now where the prime minister is the one that will be the out front when it comes to foreign affairs. Certainly the foreign affairs department uh, has never been a figurehead position in the government of Canada. It's, it's a fundamental 
uh, institution in the governance of the country. It's very important to Canadians uh, in terms of how our country is seen in the world and how we can work collaboratively with allies like the United States on economic issues, on climate change, on refugees. Uh, it's also normal that the prime minister uh, attend summits of leaders, of government leaders or heads of state. Uh, the prime minister always plays obviously a role in foreign affairs. Madame Jolie has an enormous skill set, a lot of political experience. Uh, I think she'll be an enthusiastic and effective face for Canada in the world. Uh, and I have every confidence that Canadians will be very, very proud of the work that she can do uh, for the government of Canada and for Canada globally. The government has decided to pause. It's not appealing the decision, but pausing the process after the federal court order to compensate Indigenous children who were removed from their homes. So the appeal is on hold with the hope of reaching an agreement at the table. Well, our government has acknowledged uh, from the beginning uh, that Indigenous children who were harmed in the child welfare system uh, deserve appropriate compensation. And we have had a long uh, standing and we think constructive and productive conversation in terms of settling these claims and providing just compensation uh, to people who were harmed, uh, to Indigenous children who were harmed and faced such horrible circumstances uh, in, in past years. We made uh, a generous and ambitious settlement offer again this week. Those are constructive conversations uh, that are happening uh, at this very moment. Uh, but we think it's also important uh, to remind Canadians that we've taken positive steps, including collaborating with provincial authorities and changing Canadian legislation to ensure that the very system that took Indigenous children away from their communities uh, can't exist going forward. And in fact, the authority to protect Indigenous children is properly in the hands of Indigenous authorities where it should always have been. And our, uh, our effort will be to ensure that this kind of tragedy can never repeat itself going forward, while at the same time acknowledging the responsibility for compensating justly and generously uh, the Indigenous children that faced such harm over the years. You've uh, exchanged barbs with the Alberta Premier, Jason Kenney. Um, you've doubled down with, uh, with Stephen Guibault in environment, and the previous environment minister is now in natural resources, which used to be sort of the, the, the advocate for the industry. Um, so you have that kind of message. At the same time, Alberta is sounding very unhappy. How do you fix that? Well, obviously, we continue to work with Alberta and Mr. Kenny's government. Uh, Jason Kenny's actually a friend of mine. He and I have a cordial uh, and positive and constructive ongoing dialogue. Uh, we think that Canadians in every part of the country, including in Alberta, want the government to take concerted, uh, effective action, ambitious action uh, in the fight against climate change. But at the same time, recognize that that very work is essential to ensuring long-term sustainable jobs, not only in the resource sectors, uh, but right across the country. So we don't think it's an either-or proposition. Uh, I think Jonathan Wilkinson did a terrific job as Minister of Environment and Climate Change. He was good in fisheries before that. He'll be great in natural resources. Uh, and Stephen Gilbo, 
uh, also comes to the environment portfolio with a very, very considerable experience in those issues and a credibility in those issues. But as Canadians get to know Monsieur Guilbeault, as I have uh, in recent years, they'll also see somebody who understands that the long-term sustainable economic growth of the country uh, also is married to our successful uh, fight against climate change. All right. Uh, Dominic Lebon, uh, thank you so much for talking to us today. Eric, thank you for inviting me on the program. Have a wonderful day. From climate change and COVID recovery to the rising cost of, well, virtually everything. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's newly minted cabinet faces big challenges. Joining us to share their ideas for the way forward, two cabinet veterans, former Liberal Deputy Prime Minister under Paul Martin and McClellan, and former Conservative Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt. Um, so this is, uh, as one writer put it, the two PMs who got away, uh, you know, one from each party. You've been, uh, you've been working together on a coalition for a better future. This is 109 organizations, government, private sector, non-governmental education. You want them to work together to, um, you know, kind of in concert with one another instead of hubbing and spoking, having the government as the hub and simply spokes from all of these organizations. With all of this new experience you have, uh, Anne McClellan, with your previous experience in cabinet, what is your advice right now to, the, to Justin Trudeau and his new cabinet? Well, I guess, Eric, if I was focusing on the work that Lisa and I've been doing most recently over these past three months, it would be to focus on economic growth, which leads to shared prosperity. And uh, what I mean by that is that we need sustainable, inclusive uh, prosperity. And, you know, economic growth obviously is important. But as Carolyn Wilkins said this week, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, what we want is the right economic growth. And that means that you take on board the fact that there have been people who been excluded from uh, our economic opportunity in this country. It means that you take on board the fact that our economy is in the, in, at the beginning, probably, of a transition to net zero by 2050. But uh, so much of what this government in Ottawa and other governments across Canada need and want to accomplish will depend upon strong, sustainable economic growth. So, so Lisa Raitt, you come from a conservative background, but you're finding things that you share in common with uh, Anne McClellan. I'm, you know, I'm sure they would welcome you into the Liberal cabinet to, to expand further on how do we not just recover from COVID, but springboard into the future. You may be sure. I'm not so sure, Eric. But what I would advise, as Anne has said, for all the cabinet ministers, even if you're not in what is traditionally thought of as an economic portfolio, Remember that it's all about the economy and economic growth is actually the way in which we can ensure our country prospers. So it's very important for them to think about it all the time. And we're not talking about looking at the internal workings of the government and strive to save money. And we're not even talking about how people should be cutting taxes or, or releasing on regulation. What we're talking about are the big picture ideas that we need to have a sound plan on how to get to economic growth that is more than the anemic 1%, half a percent that we're currently experiencing in the past number of years. And the other thing I would, I would also remind them that they've gone through two elections, 2015, 2019, 
and 2021, three elections really, with no real discussion about economic growth and how important it is and that they should focus on it. I, I want to I talk to you both about the fact that you were women in male-dominated cabinets, and now we are seeing a cabinet with equal numbers, and particularly this time with women now in more senior roles in cabinet. And can that change the dynamic like the, for problem-solving around a cabinet table? Oh, I, th I think so. Absolutely, Eric. Uh, women uh, tend to be, I actually would say are, uh, more collaborative in terms of how they go about making decisions. Uh, they, I think, want to listen carefully uh, before jumping to conclusions. Uh, they like to understand the full context of any problem or issue with which they're presented. And uh, so that I think that actually in the long run, and it may take just a tad longer to get there, but I think in the long run, it leads to better informed, better calibrated public policy. And then, of course, the challenge of executing on the public policy. Um, I think uh, generally women, women do bring a different perspective often a different way of decision-making. And we cannot forget that from uh, the, the lived reality and experience of many women in public life is different uh, than that of their male counterparts. Lisa Raitt, I'd really like to get your view on that as well. Just the, I mean, you would have been in a conservative cabinet. I don't know how different that might have been, but, but, but speak to that, to the issue of like more women genuinely being around and collaborating like you two are uh, collaborating to try to find new ways to make a difference. There's no question that when you have people around a table that you have things in common with, that you're going to tend to want to find agreement or find some kind of um, way to support each other and listen carefully, as Anne points out, and collaborate as best can. But uh, she nailed it as well when she pointed out that women go through a lot, a pretty different experience in terms of being a, a political figure than men do. That's a, a bonding moment for a, a lot of women. And as a result, there may be some really close relationships around that cabinet table that not only We'll work together on a personal basis, but we'll work together professionally as well. We're all human at the end of the day. We like to work with the people that like us and that we like. So that may be something that'll come into play as well. Uh, Anne McClellan, are there, are there cabinet ministers you're going to be keeping an eye on to see just what kind of a difference they make? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Eric. I mean, we have three women in three very senior cabinet portfolios. And... Um, the, the public, all of you in the media, everybody, I think, will be watching. I, you know, I would like to make one point that I, I think it's uh, unfortunate in 2021 that we still focus on the fact that women are in three senior, three of the most senior and perceived to be most important portfolios. I wish it wasn't treated as exceptional for women to be in those roles. I wish we had come further faster. But having said that, uh, we are finally in a situation where you see uh, women, not only uh, gender parity with cabinet, but you see women in uh, very important positions. And uh, yes, I, but I'll be watching, but I'll be watching from the perspective of knowing that they will do these jobs exceptionally well. 
Uh, only have a few seconds left. Lisa Raitt, last thought to you. I'm going to be watching the ministers, the new ministers, and, and a lot of them are junior in terms of time within government. I'm going to be watching the ones that have the regional economic development agencies because I'm very interested in economic growth. And I want to see whether or not putting a minister in charge of a specific part of the country is going to have us see better flow of economic growth money into those constituencies. Lisa Raitt, uh, Anne McClellan, uh, thanks very much for talking to us today. It was great. Thanks so much. The UN Climate Summit, COP26, begins today in Glasgow. World leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, will gather tomorrow. Canada has pledged to cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2030. But climate change activists say Ottawa must do more to get there. Sapora Berman is heading to Glasgow for COP26. She's the International Program Director of Stand Earth. So Sapora, Canada has barely made a dent in its GHG emissions, but it has ambitious goals. So at COP26, does Canada represent a true green partner? I think Canada can represent a, tr a true green partner. I think we have the capacity in this country to address these problems. But unfortunately, right now, we do have the worst record in the G7. Our emissions have increased more than anyone else's uh, since the Paris Agreement. So if, if Canada is going to get serious about addressing climate change and building a clean economy here at home, then we, we have to follow the science and we have to acknowledge that we need to stop expanding oil and gas, both production and emissions. And we need to make sure that in our net zero pledges and in the companies that operate in Canada and the banks, those net zero pledges include an end to the expansion of fossil fuel investment. We have to move away now and we have to plan so that no workers or their families are left behind. There are Canadians who will be very worried about that. What, what will happen to our oil and gas industry under that scenario? What it means for our oil and gas industry is the same thing it means for the industry around the world. The fact is that we need to wind down production and emission of all oil, gas and coal, and we need to stop expansion now. That doesn't mean we don't use fossil fuels. We do. And it doesn't mean we won't produce them in the future, but we're going to produce less. So what it means is that we have to plan so that no worker and their family are left behind. But if we continue to ignore that problem, if we continue not to plan, it will be more difficult and, and more people will suffer. So we need to look at economic diversification and, and, and we need to acknowledge that this is an industry that is going to have to wind down in, 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 the, next, in the next 10 to 20 years. Stephen Giebel is our new environment minister. And in terms of optics, this is very new. Um, this is somebody who was a Greenpeace activist. He scaled the CN Tower to hang a banner 20 years ago. What does he mean for Canada at this event? And what do you expect from him? What's your wish list for him? I hope what it means is that uh, this government and this cabinet uh, is serious about addressing the climate emergency and that they will follow the science uh, and ensure that our policies um, and our efforts both address the emergency and the science. So, so what that means is that we need to ramp up spending significantly on keeping Canadians safe. We need to be putting money towards planning for the fires and the floods and the heat domes because the science is showing us that they will only increase right now. These are not easy issues, but Minister Gobeau, um, while, while he has a reputation of being a strong climate leader and, and certainly has incredible knowledge of climate policy, he also has a reputation of being fair um, and, and, and of being honest and effective. And so um, I'm, I'm excited to see what he'll do 
with this new position and um, hoping uh, that this shows that the Trudeau cabinet will take serious the climate emergency and and the need uh, to move quickly away from fossil fuel uh, production and emissions. We only have a few seconds. You've talked about what it's going to take over the years, but what do you want to see specifically coming out of this conference that would give you some optimism? Well, some of the issues that are being discussed at this conference that are absolutely critical are whether or not we're going to allow companies and our own governments to use offsets as a loophole to continue to allow fossil fuel expansion really want to see Canada uh, commit to not use offsets um, and to have a strong position uh, in the negotiations around Article 6 and to commit to support the developing nations. In Paris, we committed, countries around the world committed $100 billion a year by 2020. We're not on track to support that. And there are certainly many countries that are not responsible for the climate situation that we're in who are going to need support uh, in order to uh, address um, their vulnerable populations. So I'm hoping we see more ambition. I'm hoping we see some specifics that mean that we're getting serious uh, about shifting our economies and shifting out of fossil fuels. Sapporo Berman, uh, thank you for joining us. Good luck in Glasgow. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast.